When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's one of the biggest fault lines in American society. Abortion rights divide communities, genders, and political parties. Ronald Reagan recognized that the abortion issue might be a way of helping to destroy a democratic coalition that had been in place since the New Deal. And in particular, he wanted to win over Catholics and evangelical Protestants. Ever since 1973, and a case that made legal history, Roe versus Wade, women in America have had the right to choose. But in the last few decades, that right has been under constant attack. In some states, it's already very difficult to get an abortion. For example, in Mississippi, there's only one abortion clinic, and abortion isn't legal very deep into pregnancy. And then in other states, abortion is legal, accessible, and publicly funded. Now, could a new law in Texas change abortion rights across America? Is the end in sight for Roe versus Wade? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the history of abortion in America. There are few things as emotive in a deeply divided America as abortion. A woman's right to choose was enshrined in a historic ruling, Roe versus Wade, nearly 50 years ago. Our creator endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year. In May, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, signed a controversial new law that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. The law, which bans abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, usually after just six weeks, was due to take effect on September the 1st. But on August the 30th, the Center for Reproductive Rights filed an emergency application asking the Supreme Court to block the law from coming into effect. More breaking news tonight, a stunning Supreme Court decision. Justices voting five to four, refusing to block a Texas law that outlaws abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Justices denying the request to block the law, saying abortion providers failed to make their case that the court should step in. The fear is this is the slippery slope, that by upholding the ban in Texas, the Supreme Court is edging towards overturning Roe versus Wade altogether. To understand the significance of the new Texan law and where it stands in the history of abortion laws, I spoke to one of the leading experts on the subject. My name's Mary Ziegler. I'm a law professor at Florida State University, and I'm the author of several books on abortion. Mary's most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, which was published last year. When I was in law school, we were reading about whether law could bring broader change in the society or whether that was a sort of effective way to change the society. It was back then, as a student, 
that Mary first became interested in the law surrounding abortion. And we read about desegregation, we read about civil rights, and I kept waiting for uh, the book about Roe v. Wade, because of course Roe is arguably the best-known U.S. Supreme Court decision. And when we didn't read that kind of book, I asked my professor, and he said there really hadn't been that kind of book written. And so at the time, I naively thought, well, you know, I should do that. Roe v. Wade, of course, is the big one. It's the law when it comes to abortion. Why is abortion still such a, a divisive, such a live issue in America? In part, I think it's a function of the composition of America. There's a population of religious Americans, particularly white evangelicals, who feel strongly about abortion, who are quite unique to the United States. But a lot of it also has to do with the political history of abortion. Starting in the 1980s, both political parties made abortion what we would call a wedge issue, a way of turning out and rallying voters. And they've used abortion in the years since to raise a lot of money, to bring a lot of people to the polls who wouldn't otherwise be there. And so there's almost an outrage industry in America that fuels conflicts about abortion that goes beyond just demographic differences. Because if you actually look at polling in America on abortion, um, mm. it quite closely resembles what you would see in the UK or elsewhere in Europe. So it's really more a function of differences in US abortion politics than it is a function of differences in the population. Where do average Americans sit when it comes to abortion? Most Americans are in favor of keeping abortion legal. They're in favor of keeping Roe v. Wade. They're in favor of abortion, but primarily earlier in pregnancy. The numbers drop off steeply the later in pregnancy you get. And they tend to be in favor of a lot of regulation of abortion, but not criminalization, which means a lot of Americans are conflicted about abortion, right? They want it to be legal and available, but they also are not necessarily comfortable with it. So with that as a backdrop and with, you know, as you mentioned, the hyper-politicization of the issue... A few weeks ago came this remarkable decision in Texas. Anger and outrage in Texas and across the United States Wednesday after a controversial state law took effect, making it much more difficult for a woman to get an abortion. As somebody who spent so much of their lives studying abortion law, where were you when you heard the news and what did you think? I heard the news the following morning because the Supreme Court issued this opinion literally in the dead of night. I wasn't surprised given that the court had already had what was supposed to be an emergency order for the better part of two days and hadn't said anything, which is usually what you do when you don't think something is much of an emergency. But I think it's still stunning in terms of what it represents. And just explain that to us. Explain the law and why it's so controversial. Texas's law is unique, really, in the sense that instead of criminalizing a subset of abortions, which is what most abortion restrictions do, this law instead outsources enforcement to private citizens. The new law bans abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is usually about the sixth week of pregnancy, before many women are even aware they are pregnant. In a particularly divisive twist to the law, Texas state officials cannot enforce the ban. Rather, private citizens stand to make at least $10,000 if they successfully sue anyone who provides or aids and abets an abortion after six weeks. That would include a doctor who performs it, a person who helps pay for it, even someone who drives a woman to an abortion clinic. There are no exceptions under this new law for rape or incest, the only exceptions for medical emergencies. It outsources that enforcement quite literally to any private citizen. So you don't need to be from Texas, you don't need to have anything to do with an abortion, and it allows those people to sue 
anyone uh, who performs an abortion in Texas or anyone who aids or abets someone who gets an abortion in Texas. And again, that person doing the aiding and abetting uh, doesn't need to be from Texas. So if you in the UK decide you want to give money to an abortion fund in Texas that pays for an abortion, you in theory can be sued under this Texas law too and be forced to pay a minimum amount of $10,000. The law even changes where you can be sued, who has to pay the attorney's fees if one or another party wins. It's really quite extraordinary in many ways, and it's also served to insulate state officials in Texas from liability. Break that down for us. Firstly, if you were a a woman in Texas who decided you wanted an abortion, how has the law changed for you now compared to a few months ago? Well, in theory, if you're a a woman seeking an abortion, you can't be sued in Texas at all. That said, you probably can't get an abortion in Texas anymore either, because most abortion providers have recognized that this law functionally prohibits abortions, period, right? It prohibits abortions six weeks after your last period, which eventually means you may then have two weeks to realize your pregnant schedule an abortion, have a waiting period that's statutorily mandated and get an abortion. What it's meant in real terms is that a lot of abortion providers have just said they're not going to perform procedures any longer than six weeks after a person's last menstrual period, which means that people seeking abortions in Texas, for the most part, are going to have to go out of state or get abortion medication online. How long did you have before to make the decision? Well, in Texas, it was 20 weeks. There were lots of restrictions before, but that's obviously a pretty big difference because most people who get abortions, the vast majority get them in the first trimester of pregnancy. Earlier abortions are much more common than later abortions, but there's a pretty big difference between allowing the entire first trimester as a window, as a 20-week ban would, right? I mean, even into the second trimester and allowing really functionally two weeks after you've missed your period, which is what Texas's law does now. All of this sounds pretty remarkable. And as you've already mentioned, Roe v. Wade does exist. Roe v. Wade is is the, the big decision taken by the Supreme Court a few decades ago, which sort of sets in stone. It enshrines the rights of women to have abortions in America. How is this constitutional? How is it legal? The issue in this case is really about not whether the law is constitutional, because it's not under Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade says that there's a right to choose abortion before viability, which is when chances of fetal survival are better than even. It usually arrives around the 24th week of pregnancy. Obviously, that's well after six weeks after your last menstrual period. What Texas has done here is essentially made it impossible to figure out who can be sued. So Texas has said there will be no state officials enforcing this law. Therefore, the state is immune from suit. It's not clear that that argument will work forever, but at the moment, because the law hasn't gone into effect, it's not clear which officials will be enforcing it. What would change, of course, if someone actually were sued would be that there would be some judge who would be hearing the suit, enforcing a damage award, and so on, and then abortion providers are going to argue that that person is enforcing the suit. But at this point, the law hasn't gone into effect, and Texas said, look, you can't tell us who's enforcing the law. And the Supreme Court agreed with that. So just to clarify, when the Supreme Court was asked to rule on this decision, even though it was unconstitutional legally, they couldn't do anything about it because it wasn't the state that would be suing people for having an abortion after six weeks. It could be anybody, any member of the public. So so the Supreme Court, that the legal system wouldn't know who to sue. Exactly. I think the argument is essentially that 
even if a law is unconstitutional, you have to have a way of proving it in court, which means you have to have somebody to sue. And in the U.S., you can only enforce your constitutional rights against the government, not against other private citizens. So there's sort of a catch-22, right, where you need to show it's the government violating your rights, and then you have to show that there's a government official enforcing the law. And Texas here has tried to knock out that second leg of the stool. Last week, Joe Biden called the Texan law un-American, and his attorney general, Merrick Garland, announced that the government was suing the state of Texas. After a careful assessment of the facts and the law, the Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas. The act is clearly unconstitutional under long-standing Supreme Court precedent. The decision by the Supreme Court not to overturn the law in Texas, despite it being unconstitutional, provoked an immediate and furious reaction. For the most part, there's been somewhat of a backlash. There's a a march scheduled for early October to protest the law. There's been a surge of interest in copying this bill by Republican governors, particularly governors who have presidential aspirations, who are jockeying for position, essentially trying to demonstrate that they're the most strongly opposed to abortion in the GOP field. And so it sort of reflects both the fact that most Americans are not in favor of this law on the merits and the fact that Republican politicians are more interested in courting their most ardent supporters and turning them out than they are in kind of appealing to the average American voter. I mean, from the outside, it it is, you know, it, it is fascinating and and very odd to watch America you know tearing itself apart over the issue of abortion which you know most countries have sort of kind of put into the past now in terms of legal history it's kind of established has it always been this divisive take us back to say the 19th century what was the view then in the united states it's quite clear that until late in the 19th century most states allowed abortion until quickening, which is the point at which fetal movement could be detected. So that was usually around uh, 16 weeks after a missed period. It's a little bit unclear exactly whether the quickening rule was accepted everywhere, whether Americans thought early abortions were moral, but it seems pretty clear that there weren't very many criminal prosecutions at all for earlier abortions. And that began to change in the late 19th century, and particularly the mid-19th century, when um, doctors, the leaders of the American Medical Association, which was just being founded, began demanding bans on all abortions, even early in pregnancy. And they had different reasons for doing this. Some of them were just sincere beliefs that life began at conception and that abortion was murder. Some of them were less pure motives in the sense that doctors wanted to use abortion as a point of differentiation to outcompete other kinds of medical care providers who were common in the 19th century, whether that was midwives or alternative medicine practitioners. And the American Medical Association's campaign was very successful. So by the end of the 19th century, virtually every American state banned pretty much all abortions with a narrow exception for when the patient's life was at risk. Wow. I mean, it's quite surprising hearing that now, hearing that it was the doctors who thought life began at conception and and fought against it. How did that change? When did America decide that abortions, particularly in some cases, were okay? One of the turning points was the Great Depression. There's often been a spike in interest in abortion in the United States in periods of economic struggle. So the Great Depression, of course, was catastrophic economically worldwide. 
And as that was happening, abortion rates were increasing pretty much for women of all races and classes and pretty dramatically. And this was making the medical profession look bad in a way because it was clear that many doctors were performing abortions that were at least nominally illegal. So the medical profession tried to crack down on this by channeling all abortions into hospitals and forming what were called therapeutic abortion committees, which would weigh whether an abortion really was justified under the law and under medical practice or not. And at first this seemed to work and the number of abortions went down, but as you can imagine, different doctors on different committees had very different views of when abortion was necessary. And they began more often to authorize abortion in cases when a patient's mental health would be threatened by continuing a pregnancy. And that idea of mental health could be quite broad, right? So sometimes doctors were using it to authorize abortions for social reasons or economic reasons. And it soon came to be the case that nearly three quarters of abortions in some hospitals were justified on this basis. Now for abortion opponents, that just made it seem as if people were authorizing too many abortions, but for a growing group of doctors, it made it seem as if the law itself were a problem and that the law needed to be reformed. And so they began a movement to reform the laws, um, often at first to codify what they thought would be good medical practice. So basically scenarios where they thought they would already allow an abortion, like cases of rape or incest, cases of severe fetal abnormalities, severe health threats. And that model that was often called the American Law Institute model began to be passed in states in the 1960s. But of course, that was just the beginning. There was already an anti-abortion movement then because the anti-abortion movement was not content with a kind of compromise bill like the American Law Institute bill, primarily because they thought that it didn't recognize the personhood or humanity of a fetus or unborn child, right? If you have a, a fully fledged person, you can't kill them because of rape or incest or something. So the basic idea was they were generally opposed to all abortion legalization. But even this sort of fight between doctors and abortion opponents was just one chapter in a much broader struggle in the pre-Roe years. Coming up, the case that changed abortion law and the rights of women across America, Roe versus Wade. Hi, I'm Emily Dugan, social affairs correspondent at The Sunday Times. It's you listeners and subscribers, who enable me to investigate. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This isn't the first time Texas has made legal history when it comes to abortion. The law that established the right to choose for American women was born in Texas, too. In January 1973, 
the Supreme Court ruled on what's become one of the most famous cases in American legal history, Roe versus Wade. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. It was a case that made headlines around the world. But despite its fame, the details are often forgotten. For a start, who were Roe and Wade? Well, Jane Roe was the pseudonym given to the plaintiff, Norma McCorvey, in a case against her local district attorney in Texas, Henry Wade. Roe v. Wade began when Norma McCorvey, who was a relatively low-income woman in Texas, um, realized that she was pregnant and wanted to get an abortion. She initially was told by friends to lie and say that she had been sexually assaulted because they believed that she would have an easier time getting an abortion under those circumstances. In order to get an abortion, you said that you'd been raped, didn't you? I did say that. Which wasn't true. That's right. They believed that she would have an easier time getting an abortion under those circumstances. At the time, this she was 21, and this was her third pregnancy. She eventually found her way to two attorneys, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, who were looking for pregnant women who could be test case subjects. They wanted to change a law. I wanted to have an abortion. They said, Norma, don't you want to exercise your rights by having control over your own body? Yes, I said. And they used McCorvey's suit to argue that Texas's abortion law, which allowed for abortion only when a woman's life was at risk, to argue that that law was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court voted by 7 to 2 that the U.S. Constitution provides a right to privacy that protects a pregnant woman's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. In the meantime, McCorvey never attended a trial actually gave birth during the course of the lawsuit and put the baby up for adoption. Yep, that's right. The most famous case that changed women's right to an abortion didn't actually end in an abortion itself. It ended with a baby. But it also ended with a legal precedent, a constitutional right for women in America to choose. Roe versus Wade provoked quite a reaction, although back then a remarkably polite one. Here's what you would have heard if you turned on CBS News that January in 1973. I think that uh, uh, to uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. That's Dr. Alan Guttmacher, the president of Planned Parenthood and, it would be safe to say, a supporter of women's right to an abortion. And I think that January 22nd, 1973, would be an historic day. In the Catholic corner, Monsignor James McHugh appeared on the programme to represent the right to life. In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children, and it is teaching people that abortion is a rather innocuous procedure provided that there are proper legal safeguards. At first, it was much less intense than you may expect. Roe as a polarizing force in the United States was not as obvious in the days immediately after the decision. The decision did have a pretty dramatic effect on the anti-abortion movement, which had already been very well organized and winning 
impressive victories in the states, but had really still been a state-by-state affair with some state organizations being much better developed than others. After Roe, there was a real push to have a a national anti-abortion movement, and the movement also settled on a single goal. And so they essentially decided to focus on a constitutional amendment that would ban all abortions. There were also real questions about how accessible abortion was because many states didn't have any abortion providers. And so it was hard to predict, though, that the issue would become a political football, that it would be as polarizing as it is now, much less that it would spawn violence or dominate presidential elections. Roe versus Wade led, inevitably, to an increase in the number of abortions being carried out in America. There was, at first, a pretty steady and eventually dramatic increase in the number of abortions, really from the the year after Roe all the way through the 1980s. Um, And that was a function of a few things. It was in part a function of the fact that birth control in America was pretty terrible (laughs) throughout the period. And so people who were often having unwanted or unplanned pregnancies were often using abortion in part because they were not using birth control effectively. It also reflected the fact that different groups of people were accessing legal abortion for the first time. So we have data from before Roe. Obviously, it's somewhat limited by the fact that we don't know as much about illegal abortions as we would like. But when it comes to legal abortions, uh, we know that those people having abortions before Roe were primarily people with connections. So people who were primarily white, relatively well-to-do, relatively educated, who could kind of navigate the hurdles of the abortion system. After Roe, it was much easier to get an abortion. And so you began to see the population seeking the procedure being more likely to be lower income, more likely to be people of color, more likely to be young people. And so I think accessibility of abortion opened the door to a much broader group of people with unplanned pregnancies. And in the meantime, what happened to Norma McCorvey, the woman at the heart of the case? You said she had to have her baby, but what happened to her afterwards? Well, at first, uh, McCorvey became kind of an icon for the pro-choice movement. She would do speaking engagements and public appearances and was herself said she was very pro-choice and also became kind of emblematic of the pro-choice cause. After she became a little bit older in life in the 1990s, she converted to Christianity and was baptized in a swimming pool. And at that time also decided to swear off her former belief in illegal abortion and she became an anti-abortion activist. For years and years, I used to think that um, it was a a woman's right to choose, period. Uh, But after working in four abortion clinics here in the Dallas area, and learning a lot more, um, I, I started having inner conflicts with myself. And um, I, I really got extremely depressed when women would call into the clinics and want to make appointments for second trimester abortions. And there's been some dispute ever since. There was, in fact, a documentary in recent years where McCorvey told the documentarian that she had only switched sides for money. I think both pro-life and pro-choice forces tend to frame McCorvey as a victim. Pro-life forces essentially say that McCorvey had not understood what abortion was and it had been unwittingly used to legalize a procedure that harmed lots of women. Pro-choice forces essentially frame McCorvey as someone who was down on her luck and desperate for money that the pro-life movement exploited to make good talking points. The reality is probably somewhere in between because McCorvey herself was quite savvy and I think understood her value to both movements and sometimes parlayed that into financial security she wouldn't have otherwise have had. 
I mean, her story does tell us an awful lot about how the issue has played out in in America over the last few decades. Talk us through the politics. When did it become such a political lodestone? It wasn't immediately after Roe. For the better part of a decade after Roe, what you see is both parties sort of trying to stay away from the abortion issue and viewing it as a way of sort of unnecessarily dividing their constituents. And you see politicians staking out middle ground positions on abortion. So Jimmy Carter, for example, said he was not for criminalizing abortion, but he also didn't want public insurance programs to pay for abortions. And he wanted to focus on contraception as an alternative to abortion. Gerald Ford, his Republican competitor, said he was opposed to abortion, but also was opposed to anything banning abortion. He instead wanted each state to have the ability to decide, which was not what anti-abortion groups themselves wanted. And both parties had both pro-life and pro-choice forces in them. For example, one of the most powerful Democrats in the Senate, Thomas Eagleton, was a pro-life Democrat. The governor of New York, long-term governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, was a prominent pro-choice Republican. And so it was really impossible to identify either party with a cause. That began to change in the 1980s, in part because Ronald Reagan recognized that the abortion issue might be a way of helping to destroy a democratic coalition that had been in place since the New Deal. And in particular, he wanted to win over Catholics and evangelical Protestants who may have been inclined to vote Democratic for economic reasons, but were more socially conservative. What single issue could say more about a society's values than the degree of respect shown for human life at its most vulnerable, human life still unborn? And so Reagan then became very strongly and openly opposed to abortion in ways that made the Republican Party, as he would put it, the party of life. Democrats at the same time were becoming more influenced by feminists and by the women's movement. And so really by the 1980 election and then in the elections that followed, each party began to use abortion as a way to raise money, as a way to turn out the vote, as a way to kind of shore up political coalitions. And in the years since, abortion really has become a big business, not in the sense of providing abortion care, but in the sense of the politics and fundraising of abortion. And since then, since Roe v. Wade came in, it's sort of been chipped away at by various states. It's been such a political issue. Lots of people have tried to change the law. Where does it stand now? In the years since Roe, there was a decision called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which came at a time very similar to now when there was a six-justice Supreme Court majority in favour of reversing Roe, or so we thought. But the court didn't reverse Roe and instead created a new rule that's the rule that applies now, which is essentially that states can't unduly burden abortion. So on the one hand, that meant that there was still a right to choose abortion. On the other hand, it meant that states would have more room to pass incremental abortion restrictions. And in the years since, they've passed you know, literally hundreds of these laws, which has created kind of a patchwork in the United States so that in some states, it's already very difficult to get an abortion. For example, in Mississippi, there's only one abortion clinic and abortion isn't legal very deep into pregnancy. And there are lots of limits on the specific procedures that can be performed. And then in other states, abortion is legal, accessible and, and publicly funded. And just as a sense of how strongly some people feel about it, I mean, we have seen in the past, I remember in the 90s, anti-abortion feeling flare up so much in America that you'd sort of see protests outside clinics and things even took a deadly turn. I mean, tell me a bit about that. The anti-abortion movement was particularly, there's always been an extremist wing of the movement. It was arguably the most visible in the late 80s and 90s, in part because the anti-abortion movement had been expecting the Supreme Court to overrule Roe and then the court didn't. And so there were extremists at this point saying, well, if legal and political strategies won't work, we have to do something more direct. 
This led to Operation Rescue, which was a huge movement to blockade entrances to clinics in major cities and small towns across the country, often recording thousands of arrests in each blockade. Wichita police used two city buses and a rental truck to haul the pro-life rescuers to jail. Those who walked went to the city for a trial date. Even a slow-stepping priest was arrested, as were praying women, clutching pictures of dead fetuses. Some Operation Rescue members didn't want to just break the law by trespassing and blockading access to clinics. They thought it was justifiable to actually murder abortion providers. And so starting in the mid-1990s, there was a spate of killings of abortion providers, including most recently the murder of Dr. George Tiller in Wichita in 2009. Investigators in Kansas are scouring the background of the suspect in the murder of one of America's most controversial abortion providers. Dr. George Tiller was shot and killed in church yesterday. Services had just begun when 67-year-old George Tiller, a doctor in the middle of the abortion debate for 35 years, was gunned down in the church lobby. Pro-life leaders and the pro-life movement are not responsible for George Tiller's death. George Tiller was a mass murderer, and horrifically, he reaped what he sowed. Attacks on abortion clinics haven't stopped. In 2019, CBS News ran this story. The number of attacks and disruptions against abortion clinics across the country have reached record numbers. The National Abortion Federation reported over 1,000 violent acts committed against abortion clinics, the highest number of attacks since the group started keeping records in 1977. It's almost 50 years since the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade made abortion legal across America. But its future is looking shaky. In one of his last acts as president, Donald Trump appointed a third conservative judge to the Supreme Court, tilting the law towards the Republican agenda. But it's not the Texan law that might put an end to Roe versus Wade. Instead, it's a bill in another southern state. This is a Mississippi law that bans abortion at 15 weeks, and this is the point at which Mississippi says fetal pain is possible. It's worth noting briefly that most researchers don't think fetal pain is possible until much later in pregnancy. The interesting point is that 15 weeks is, of course, much earlier than fetal viability. And so in order to uphold Mississippi's law, as many expect the Supreme Court to do, the court will either have to get rid of all of Roe v. Wade or get rid of the part of Roe v. Wade that says that you can't ban abortion before fetal viability. And if that, of course, were true, then it would be much easier to say that Roe v. Wade has less power as a precedent, because if you can rewrite it that easily, then it's worth asking, you know, how much is the Supreme Court really going to respect that precedent when the time comes to overrule it altogether? Do you think they will support this case from Mississippi? I do. I think the question is really if they're going to overturn Roe altogether, or if instead uh, they're going to do something more gradual. I really do think we're looking at a probability of Roe being overturned in the near future, and the question is how quickly and how, not when. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Mary Ziegler law professor at Florida State University and the author of Abortion and the Law in America. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is James Shield and sound design was by David Crackles. 
If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.